The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. If you'll remain standing and turn your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, we're in chapter 18. Matthew 18, this is page 823, if you're using the Pew Bibles. We will read and consider this morning uh, the first 14 verses, Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 through 14. So let's worship God by listening carefully to this, the public reading of his word. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand causes your foot, excuse me, and if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that, have nev- that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Amen. That's Father reading God's word. Let's uh, seek his blessing. Let's pray. Lord, please help us this morning as we come to your word, as we hear it again. Come to us by your spirit, we pray, and grant that we would receive it, O Lord God, with your blessing. Receive it in true faith. Cause, O Lord, our knowledge to deepen and strengthen our faith and cause our love for you to be made more fervent this morning. Work in us by your spirit, Lord God. Use your word, we pray, in the lives of your people to make us more like our Savior, Christ Jesus, in whose name we do pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, we've seen that uh, having established the truth that Jesus is the Messiah, he's really been teaching his disciples what kind of Messiah he would be and what it would be like to be his disciples. He would be a suffering Messiah, and they too would need to be uh, willing and ready to suffer. It seems that 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 message is not quite sinking in, because what is it that seems to be on their minds? Well, to use more modern pop culture lingo that we sometimes hear today, we might be saying, well, the disciples were thinking about, who's the goat, right? The greatest of all time. I don't know 
I think that, 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 that expression became popular while we were away in Africa. I know it originated, I think, with Muhammad Ali, but I came back one, one furlough, and I'm hearing all this talk about who's the goat. All I could think about was back in Africa, the goats, you know, running around in the field being cared for by the shepherd boys. But no, these were sports an- 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 analysts, right, debating. Is it, is it Michael Jordan or is it LeBron James, the greatest of all time basketball player? Who's the greatest football player? Surely it has to be Tom Brady. Well, I suppose that in any discussion about who's the goat, one category of person who would never be suggested as a little child, right? I'm thinking no one ever took a two-year-old and said, you know, when it comes to toddlers, man, he's the goat. He's the greatest of all time. We don't think of toddlers that way. Well, the same was true in the world of these disciples in their discussion about who's the greatest in the kingdom. They came to Jesus. They asked this question. Mark leaves out, or Matthew leaves out some of the details. We know from Mark there was actually a, uh, an argument about this, and they were actually a bit ashamed, embarrassed to tell Jesus what they were talking about. Here it's simply sort of presented as the question comes to Jesus, and I would submit to you that in answering that question, Jesus used one of his goats, one of his greatest of all time Uh, object lessons. Jesus called to himself this child and really shocked them by saying in so many words, you want to see the goat? Here's your goat. Here's the greatest. And in so doing, our Lord taught them and he teaches us this morning about true discipleship. Our message this morning is this, that Christian discipleship is a pursuit of childlike, childlikeness for oneself and for other disciples. Christian discipleship is a pursuit of childlikeness for oneself and for the sake of other disciples. I have three points about discipleship this morning as we look at our text. We'll see first that it is indeed a call to become like a child. That's verses 2 through 5. Secondly, that it is a call to resolve not to cause Christ's little ones to stumble, verses 6 through 9. And then lastly, we'll see that it's a call then not to despise the sheep whom Jesus came to save, verses 10 through 14. So that's what's before us. Our first point then is that the discipleship is a call to become like a child. This is verses 2 through 5. We, we know, know nothing about the identity of this particular child whom Jesus called. He remains completely anonymous. In some ways, I think that that reinforces the very point that our Lord here was making. This was not an individual who had made a great name for himself. Little children don't think about making great names for themselves. In that sense, they're humble. So Jesus speaks in verse 4 of humbling oneself like a child. Of course, the point is is not that that little children are sinless and that they possess some sort of inherent humility. We know, of course, that that's not true. Some have suggested that Jesus really used this comparison because of the way in which children tend to be dependent upon and willing to receive from their parents. They have trusting uh, trusting spirits. They're willing just to sort of follow whatever it is that mom or dad Says, of course, not. That's not to say that children have never, never have selfish moments where they fuss when they don't get their own way and so forth. Of course, they do, but they tend to trust. They tend to accept what mom or dad says. They tend to follow. 
They certainly never sort of assume the leadership position. They don't, they don't see themselves as the one setting the agenda, right? When Jesus called this little child, I'm pretty sure that the child didn't say, wait a minute, who put you in charge? Like, yeah, I need to be filled in. What's going on here, right? Certainly didn't turn and try to take the leadership role. Let me, let me give you some tips about teaching here, Jesus. Maybe you ought to try it this way. No, the, trial, the child took the humble position, trusted, did what he or she was told. That sinfulness notwithstanding, that's what children generally do. And I think that's helpful by way of sort of application as we think about the call to child-likeness in that sense in discipleship. I do agree with those who suggest that really the, the, the point Jesus was, was making here primarily had to do with status or rank in society. The Lord was appealing to something that, that everyone knew about the world, something that really is, is true even in our modern world, in our society today, but it was particularly true in the ancient world. Children did not rank highly. Children did not hold the, the high positions on the, the social scale. Again, they didn't even think about doing so. Even, even the son of Caesar, you can imagine, when, when he was a one-year-old, you know, just, just learning to walk, you could have placed him right there with the other one-year-olds, even the one-year-olds of the slaves, and he wouldn't have thought himself any different. He wouldn't have been, you know, struggling to walk and strutting around in pride, saying, look at me, I'm the son of the emperor. I rank more highly than the rest of you toddlers. No, children don't think that way. One-year-olds don't think that way. And the point of Jesus, Jesus was making is, neither should my disciples think that way. Sadly, it seems that, that the disciples themselves were thinking that way in some ways. In some ways, in the context, we might find it understandable that they did. Remember what we saw last time, back in chapter 17 and verse 26, where Jesus made the point that, technically speaking, he should not have been required to pay the temple tax. He talked about the the special privileges of those who are sons of kings. So in some ways, I suppose it's understandable that the the minds of the disciples might have gone to what might be their special status, what might be their rank in the kingdom as those who are the, the, the immediate disciples, the ones closest to the great Messiah, King, perhaps they quickly forgot what we learned from Jesus. As the son of the king of the universe, Jesus, yes, he quite, quite rightly could have claimed exemption from that temple tax, but Jesus surrendered the right. Jesus submitted. Jesus paid the tax. Jesus lowered himself. That was his mission. The, the, the truly great one, the son of God, had become the lowly one. We'll see in two chapters, chapter 20, verse 28, that the Son of Man had come not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. His greatness, his glory would be attained not by exalting himself, but by lowering himself. And that's why at this very moment he was headed to Jerusalem to suffer we can go back to uh, our introduction to the Matthew, Gospel of Matthew and we, we talked about how the, the, the Gospel of Matthew is sort of a, a continuous narrative involving a geographical progression. This is the story I suggested about the journey of Jesus as the Christ. His messianic work involved a journey from Galilee to Jerusalem where he would suffer and he would die 
for our sins, only then would come the triumphant glory of his resurrection and that resurrection appearance back in Galilee. The journey unto his suffering had to precede his glory, and that's what's going on at this this point in Matthew's gospel. Recall the disciples have confessed Jesus as the Messiah. They did so in Caesarea Philippi, the farthest uh, most northern region to which Jesus had taken them, even north of the Sea of Galilee. And now he was journeying to Jerusalem. Of course, the journey took him through his own home region, Galilee. And we recall that Galileans did not hold the high place on the social scale. Galileans were not the great ones in the kingdom, so to speak. They were not highly regarded by the Jews of Judea. Jesus was a Galilean. This is the gospel of Jesus of Nazareth. And all of this speaks so powerfully to the truth that Jesus was not journeying to Jerusalem to be counted the greatest, not to be treated as a king. His journey would take him to the cross. And of course, we remember well that this needs to be seen in the broader context. The gospel is the story of the great one, the king of of, of all of creation, God himself, who had left his heavenly glory to become a man, to dwell in this lowly, sin-cursed world, and indeed to become the lowliest of all. Elsewhere, Jesus would say, if you want to be great in God's kingdom, learn to be the servant of all. Well, Jesus showed himself to be the great one. He would attain to the true greatness by showing himself to be the servant of all. The greatest of all became the lowest of all. And so what were the disciples doing at this point in, in thinking about who was the greatest? Well, really, they were, they were headed in the wrong direction, weren't they? going in kind of the opposite direction of Jesus. How fitting it was then that, that, that Jesus told them, what must happen? Don't miss the gravity of the moment, the power of the words here. This is, this is one of those truly I say to you moments. In fact, we see that in verse 3, don't we? Truly I say to you, unless you turn, think about that. I'm going this way. You're going that way. You'd better turn around. And in thinking about who's the greatest, you are not following me. You are not following the path that leads into the kingdom. Indeed, as verse 5 shows us, such, such self-exaltation is so contrary to Christ that it is not receiving him. To refuse the way of the child, as it were, is to refuse Christ and his path of humble suffering obedience. And so, so Jesus said, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You need to turn. You need to become what this child is like. You need to make a a, a conscious, deliberate choice to become what children are naturally like, not in terms of their sinfulness, but in terms of their, their humble, lowly position, their humble status. You must humble yourself and take the lowest place. Be ready to be regarded as the lowliest. The call to Christian discipleship is a call to become like a child. Now what that looks like then is spelled out wonderfully in the the next two points. We see secondly then that it is a call to resolve not to cause Christ's little ones to stumble. This is verses six through nine, uh, really introduced by by verse five. Those words, whoever receives one such child in my name receives 
me. So the call is, is not, not simply to receive Christ, not simply to receive and to value highly him and his humble, submissive, childlike obedience. <clears throat> this is a call also to receive those who belong to him. We see that the focus in this section really is not so much on individual discipleship. It really focuses our attention on the corporate aspect of discipleship. Those who receive Christ are joined together with others who likewise receive him. And here Jesus is telling his disciples, you are receive one another in my name. That is, receive and treat one another as you would receive and treat me. We know the, the sad truth, don't we, that, that the, for those, those little ones, it doesn't take very long for them to grow up and begin treating, to each, to treating each other not so well, right? Very easy for little children to treat each other unkindly, to make fun of one another. Adults as well, we can, we can easily act like children in a bad way, not a, not a good way. Well, well, Christian, we need to listen to this. Children, as well as adults, You are to receive, you are to treat one another as you would treat Christ himself. When you treat one another, when you treat others kindly, when you treat, when you act in such a way as to to suggest that you think you are better than they are, you're treating Jesus as if you think you're better than he is. And you cause others to stumble. No true disciple of Jesus would ever purposefully go up and can you imagine Jesus walking along and you put out your foot or threw out a stick and purposely made him him trip hopefully no no good person would ever purposely go up and trip up a little one-year-old as he's learning to walk and purposely make him fall down well he'll hear Jesus was saying as my disciples you should never do that uh, to, to any person but particularly to those who are those 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 precious little ones who believe in me, as it says in verse 6. In the context, these were powerful words, weren't they, as they were directed particularly to the 12, the apostles, those who had the very important work of rightly shepherding the sheep on the path of following Christ rightly. Jesus was telling that them that in adopting this who's the greatest mindset, they were in danger of driving the sheep away from Christ, causing the little ones to stumble, scandalizing them. The Greek word there used for a, for a cause to sin is skandalizo. It can mean to cause, to stumble. This is the verbal form of the word which Jesus used when he rebuked Peter, you recall, back in chapter 16 and verse 23. Remember how Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. You are, he said, you are skandalion. You are a hindrance or a stumbling block to me, Peter had rebuked Jesus for speaking of his suffering, his dying. Peter had said to Jesus, far be it from Lord, this shall never happen to you. We can say that, that Peter, had, Peter had sought to cause Jesus to sin, to stumble on his messianic mission. He had sought to hinder, to obstruct Jesus on his, uh, in his path from going to the cross. Well, in our text, Jesus was warning against the very, committing the very same sin against the disciples of Christ, the sin of tripping up disciples, obstructing them on their path of following Jesus and his path of childlike humility. And just note the strength 
of the warnings here, as we see in verse, as verse 6 continues there. You'd be better off having a, a great millstone fastened, strapped around your, your neck and being thrown in, made to drown way down in the depths of the sea. What a horrifying thought. Jesus is saying it would be better for that to happen to you than to commit this sin. This, this may sound harsh, but as you stop and think about it here, there were many who rejected the notion of a suffering Christ. They were scandalized by the thought of a Messiah who would be crucified. They were ashamed of the sufferings of Christ, and they rejected him because of his sufferings. And we know that in, in so doing, they were, they, were, they were rejecting the only hope of salvation from the eternal judgment, even the fires of hell. And by not only rejecting the true suffering Messiah, but acting such a way as to lead others away from him, they were only adding to their guilt. They were only increasing their condemnation. So really, it was a gracious thing of our Lord to to sound this warning, to say what he did in verse 7, woe, woe to the world, do not commit this sin. And notice, by the way, how our Lord's words here, there in verse 7, they bring forth the truth that God is 100% sovereign, and yet man is 100% responsible. Our Lord tells us temptations will certainly come. It's necessary. God has even decreed it, we can say. And he will uh, accomplish his sovereign purposes through it, but that does not absolve you of your responsibility if you are the one through whom such temptation comes, particularly if you are one who rejects Christ and even leads others in so doing, a day will come, a day will come when you will will wish that the only suffering you had to experience was drowning in the sea or losing a hand or a foot or an eye as we read the language there in verses 8 and 9, the similar language uh, you may recall to what we saw back in the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5, to lose a body part is nothing compared with the suffering of the eternal judgment, that which we all deserve and that which all those who oppose and reject a suffering Savior will surely face. And by God's grace, those who follow Christ, of course, resist that temptation to so to oppose Christ and resist the temptation so to cause others to oppose a suffering Christ. They are called to do so, and by his grace, they do resist that temptation to forsake him and to lead others in forsaking him on that path of childlike humility and submission. They wage war against the sin. That is the the sin of despising the suffering of Jesus, being ashamed of the cross and influencing others to do the same. They deal with that sin. Talk about mortification of the flesh language, right? They deal with it as they would an offensive hand or foot or eye, a scandalous body part. Again, same, same Greek word there for offend, scandalizo. Let's not miss the application here. This is for all of us. You know, I think probably all of us here praise, we can praise God that, that we are those who have not embraced and believed, much less have we preached a false health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, right? I fear what it would be like for those who have 
preach such false gospels that say, no suffering, only, only greatness, glory, comfort if you follow Jesus. But what do we do whenever we walk in pride rather than walking in the, in the path of childlike humility in following Christ? Whenever we act in such a way as, as to treat others if we, as if we think we're better than they are, whenever we, we adopt the who's the greatest I am mentality, and whenever we do that, we are, we are not following Christ. We are not acting in the best interest of our own souls and certainly not acting in the best interest of the souls of our brothers and sisters. We are, by poor example, tempting Christ's little ones, the disciples, to forsake the path of humility and suffering, to forsake that path of following Jesus And brothers and sisters, to whatever extent we find ourselves, we found ourselves doing that in our lives, the Lord calls us this morning to repent, to repent and forsake that sin, to forsake ourselves as we look to Christ and we turn to him afresh in faith. And so we purpose to become like a child. And with respect to others, purpose not to cause them to stumble, but to encourage them in that calling. And our Lord helps us to flesh that out further and really get to the real motive, the reason behind that then, as we move to our last point this morning, our last point about the call to discipleship is that it is a call not to despise the sheep whom Jesus came to save. This is the last section, verses 10 through 14. I've stated that negatively, do not despise. We see that Jesus himself states it quite emphatically, negatively in verse 10, where it says, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. But we see that it's also set forth quite positively. What's the opposite of despise? But love. And this is a a section here which so wonderfully reveals God's saving love. Why is it? Why is it that we are to purpose to receive and to purpose not to stumble, but rather to encourage and build up and minister to those little ones? It's because of the love of Christ that love compels us. It constrains us in becoming not the greatest, but the lowliest, the suffering servant, Jesus himself. He showed us the greatest of all time love, the greatest of all time act of God's love. And, and because of that, that love, we're constrained to follow in that act of love, God's great love of saving lost sinners. And so we see in verse 12, our Lord's parable, primarily about what he has done, right? But certainly in calling us what to, be, to, to, to be like him. He talks about the, the man who had a hundred sheep, the one who's become, one of the sheep has become lost. And so what does the man do? Well, he goes after it. He leaves the 99 on the mountain and he goes on a serious rescue mission. That one sheep is precious to him. He loves that sheep. And we can speak about God's general love. He has a general love for all. Uh, He has a concern for all lost sinners. But there's a special love that God has for his elect. And I think verse 14 speaks to that. Where Jesus says, So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. This should call to mind, I think, the words of Christ in John chapter 6, 
verses 37 to 39, where Jesus says, all that the Father has, gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. This speaks to the certainty, I think, that that not one, not one of God's elect, not one of those ones given by the Father to the Son as a love gift will ever be lost. Christ will certainly seek out and save every last one. But note how the emphasis is not only on his concern for those ones while they are lost, but how he delights in them once he's found them and they've been returned to his fold. Look at what it says in verse 13. This is another truly I say to you statement. It says, and if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. More than the 99 who never went astray. I think perhaps that's something of a a rebuke there for those who never see their lostness. They never see themselves as those who have gone astray. They never see themselves as sinners in need of salvation. They they, they see themselves as the great ones. So they, they look down upon and they despise Others, we, may, we might recall our Lord's parable in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18, the parable of the, the Pharisee and the tax collector. Call it the one who went home right with God, the one who went home justified before God. It was not the Pharisee who thought that he was so righteous. It was the tax collector, the wonder, one who understood the greatness of his sin, who, who beat his breast in shame and he cried out, for mercy. You see, there was one who understood lowliness, understood what it was like to count himself as a helpless child. Well, in Luke 18, verse 9, we're told that, that Jesus told that parable because of those ones who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they treated others with contempt. I believe that the same kind of lesson comes out in our text this morning. Jesus is teaching us that if we understand our sinfulness, then we will never look down on and despise others, other sinners. Makes for a nice transition to the next section about forgiveness and about forgiving those who sin against us. But love for fellow sinners, it flows out of an understanding of God's great love. Oh, how God loves. Oh, how God loves the precious little ones whom Jesus came to save. He loves us. We, he loves us and we love him because he first loved us and he calls us then not to despise one another, but to love one another, to love the precious little ones who are like we. Think of the words of the Apostle John. Little children, little children, let us love one another as he has commanded us. And and with that love with which he has loved us, you know, the world will not love us. We're commanded not to be surprised when the world hates us, when they when they treat us with disdain because of our childlikeness, our commitment to, to following the humble path of suffering obedience. We may be mocked by the, the great ones in this world because of our trust 
in a crucified Savior. We may, may indeed and should expect to be counted among the lowest rank in society, but we're happy so to be counted when we remember that Christ loves us and it's enough for, enough for us. In fact, look at what we're told in verse 10. I skipped over verse 10. Amazing words here. Jesus says, For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Note those words. Their angels. As, as God's precious little ones, the angels in heaven can be said to, to be our angels. In what sense are they ours? Well, in the sense of what we learn in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14, that the angels are called ministering spirits who are they're sent out to serve for the sake of, for, for our sake, those who are to inherit salvation. Just stop and think about what that means. The great ones, the, the, the holy ones, those ones, those ones who are up in heaven presiding in the divine council, standing before and beholding the very face of God. They are sent to serve us, to come to us little ones in our weakness and our vulnerability. They guard us and they protect us under the rule of the God who is preserving us even unto everlasting life. Is that not wonderful? If God is for us, who could be against us? How could we ever turn against a little one and look down on another one when God loves that one and, and, and is for that one? It's, it's, it's not the will of that one ever to perish, and we can be sure that God will not allow the little ones to perish. He will not allow us to perish. We are God's precious little ones. What can the world do to us? gouge out an eye, cut off a limb. We are heirs of a kingdom infinitely greater than, of infinitely greater worth than any body part or even our lives themselves in this world. We are God's precious little ones, beloved in Christ Jesus. And God calls us as his disciples to see ourselves that way. And that's how we're to see our fellow disciples. Let us never, ever despise one another. Let us instead, for the sake of one another, turn and be like children and take the place of the servant and in humility then love and serve, lowering ourselves. Love and serve one another. That is the true greatness and we know that's the true greatness because that was the way of the great one, Christ Jesus. Let us pursue not our greatness but his greatness and his glory with God's help. Let us pray.